0: now, The Mentors Radio, one of the most popular and unique shows on the air today. Here each week, remarkable CEOs and leaders, including host Tom Laurie and Dan Hesse, and their guests, will mentor you, challenging your thinking about life and work. Sought after for their ethical leadership and advice, and for helping others succeed throughout their careers, now these same CEOs, The Mentors, want to help you achieve your highest level of profitability, success, and personal fulfillment in life at work and in business. Learn more and check out the show notes at mentorsradio.com. That's mentorsradio.com. And now here's your mentor.
1: Thank you for joining us. I'm Tom Laurie, and I'll be your host today. Today, we have a truly remarkable guest, Melissa Schilling, professor of management and organization at New York University Stern School of Business. She has been studying innovation for 30 years with a focus on the science of creativity. She is one of the world's leading authorities on the innovation strategies of cutting-edge industries such as smartphones, biotech, electric vehicles, and renewable energy. In her best-selling book, Quirky, she shared the science behind the convergence of those traits that increase the likelihood of success. Today, she's going to share the practical aspects of what she has learned and how we can nurture breakthroughs in our own lives, such as how we manage people how we interact with those that are quirky, quirky, and even how this applies to raising our children. Welcome to The Mentors, Melissa. Finally, we got you on here. Good.
2: Thank you for having me. I'm really excited.
1: So to get started, let's uh, have you talk a little bit more about yourself so people know who you are with an emphasis about your mission in life, how you got involved in all of this.
2: Cool. All right. So uh, you, as you already mentioned, I'm a professor in strategy and innovation. I currently am a, I'm a professor at NYU, New York University. I've been there for about 22 years, I think. Before that, I was a professor at Boston University and I got my Ph.D. at the University of Washington. Uh, but I grew up in Colorado in the mountains, in a, in a cabin in the mountains near Boulder. And um, so that's kind of how I, how I got my beginning. I never thought I would end up in New York City. Uh, And very early on in my career, I got really interested in innovation. I've done a lot of research on innovation, and I have sort of done research on the whole value chain of innovation from deployment to, you know, which is way at the tail end of the value chain, collaboration, new product development processes. And I started working my way progressively upstream towards where did these ideas come from, what are innovators like? And uh, yeah, so right now, my research agenda is pretty much focused on, I do a lot of stuff on networks and platforms, but I'm doing a lot of stuff on breakthrough innovators and understanding what makes them tick, what makes them innovative, how much of it is nature, how much of it is nurture, and how we can manage people to facilitate their breakthrough innovation potential.
1: I got to ask, are you an expert skier since you grew up in Colorado?
2: Expert snowboarder. I learned to ski when I was really young, like at about seven. But then at some point, someone taught me to snowboard. And once I started snowboarding, I never went back. Uh And I actually think snowboarding is a really good sport for women because it really uses like the muscles that we have that are strongest. And you're much less likely to twist your knees snowboarding. So yeah, and then you don't need to bring the spears along anymore. (laughs)
1: Well, I'm I'm a downhill skier and I've skied Aspen, Vale, and Beaver Beaver Creek and enjoyed Colorado skiing because it has some of the best snow in the country, as you well know. It's just delightful.
2: For sure. It's us in Utah. Nobody else can compete.
1: That's right. So uh, in your journey to doing the work you're doing today, were there any key pivots or key mentors that you had
2: Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's, it's interesting because I, when I started the PhD program, I thought I was going to be doing everything around uh, environmental studies. And I still really care about the environment, the natural environment. I care a lot about animals. I was really interested in animal cognition when I was first getting involved in doctoral work, but then I had an advisor named Charles Hill at university of Washington and he was really interested in technology and he sort of sparked my interest in technology and innovation and, You know, there was a a big, long stretch of time when I was only doing work on technology and innovation, and that was because of Charles. And then it's only been in the last maybe seven years or so that I've actually been able to bring back more of my, my interest in cognition by focusing on innovators and how they think. So in a way, I've kind of come full circle because I started out thinking I would do something on animal cognition and maybe the natural environment, went towards technology, and now I'm back into cognition, not so much well, humans are animals, <laughs> but uh, and I also do some stuff on innovation in for the natural environment. So I'm advising a a really cool battery startup right now that's inventing a more environmental battery. I've done some stuff on innovation and renewable energies. So it's it's sort of brought me around full circle. But I'm super grateful I had Charles Hill in my life because he really taught me to be a better thinker.
1: And I'm always curious particularly with uh, teachers in the MBA or master's program, how much time do you spend in the classroom?
2: A lot. I mean, I mean, I guess it depends on the time of year, but uh, you know, our standard course load is about three courses a year, so three semester-long courses a year. And then, you know, you often get tapped to pick up other things, like teach an extra course here in the summer or teach some execs. Uh, I also sometimes teach actually at companies special programs in strategy or special programs in innovation. Um, I mean, you're looking for hours. You want actual hours? No, or no,
1: that- no. I just, that's, that's <laughs> uh, great. And what, what are some of the titles of the courses that you would be teaching?
2: OK, so the, the bread and butter course, the standard course is strategy, also called strategic management. That's often a core course. That's a core course in most uh, business undergrad and MBA programs. It's a core course in EMBA programs. Uh, but the course I'm, that I developed that I the elective that I'm probably most known for is an innovation strategy course. So it's all about technology, innovation, strategy and how you can do it better and have more successful products that, that come to market faster and are more uh, more profitable.
1: So is it more on the development of the technology or the development and the commercialization of the technology?
2: It's both. So the the course, uh, when it's a semester long class, sometimes we only teach it in a half semester format, but it covers technology innovation strategy, like how you choose projects, how you put together teams, how you manage them. And then also how you collaborate on them, how you think about intellectual property rights, how you want to protect them or not protect them. And then also then how you deploy them, like how you want to think about distribution or pricing. And do you want intermediaries? And, you know, is this a is this a a product that will have network effects? So you got to work with complementors. Do you want to subsidize those complementors? So that's all sort of in my wheelhouse because uh, because I've been working on the whole value chain of innovation for so long. I also have a textbook. I have a textbook called Strategic Management and Technological Innovation. And that's the, the number one textbook in this domain. It's in like its seventh uh, edition now. So that's given me a lot of opportunities to go back and learn from everybody else what best practices are. Because, because when you write a textbook, you know a lot of it isn't your work. It isn't about you. It's about being able to assemble the finest work that anyone has done on the subject.
1: And do you do any online courses that the public can tune into?
2: Sometimes. I don't have any right now, but occasionally I do. I also have a whole video series. I don't know if you've seen it. I have a whole free YouTube series with like little, you know, anywhere from three minutes to nine minute videos on innovation strategy. So they're sort of bite-sized nuggets. I I also have videos on regular strategy. So I have videos on how to do external analysis and how to think about competitive advantage or how to think about collaboration. Or how to do innovation deployment and they're supposed to be funny so they're not all you know knee slapper funny but you know they're playful
1: and is this under your name yeah, uh, to just, find them on youtube we just put in your name
2: yeah you could put in melissa shilling strategy and you would find both sets that way if you want to find just the innovation ones you could put in melissa shilling innovation strategy
1: Okay. Well, we're going to come right back after a short break. We're with Melissa Schilling, author of quirky, and we're talking about the traits foibles and genius of breakthrough innovators who have changed the world. This is Tom Laurie, and you're listening to the mentors radio show.
0: And now back to the mentors where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business.
1: Welcome back. This is Tom and I'm with Melissa Schilling, author of Quirky. And we're talking about the traits, foibles, and genius of breakthrough innovators like Steve Jobs, Albert Einstein, Madame Curie, those who changed the world. Remember, you can also listen to this show or any previous show on any device at any time by going to the mentorsradio.com or iTunes, Spotify, Google, or any other podcast platform. Subscribe while you're there so you don't miss any future shows. Again, that's the mentorsradio.com. And also, while you're there, Give us a high five on the review to alert others who are searching for career and life advice. Okay, so let's get into the real meat of the show, and that has to do with these great people, and you've extensively researched the lives of a lot of innovators. Um, How did you make your choices of who to study? I mean, there's so so many. I was thinking about this in prep for the show, and I watched a, a eulogy that somebody did during the funeral of Muhammad Ali. Yeah, and yeah. when you think about Muhammad Ali, he was quite an innovator. He changed the boxing world; just transformed it. So, you you focused on a few, but there are many others. We don't want to make people think these are the only ones. But right, what what is what are the common traits that you found that they had?
2: Well, let me start off by telling you how I chose them because yeah. uh, because so I started this as a as a research project. You know. It had to be uh, scientifically rigorous. So I didn't actually choose the people. What I did was I set up a protocol that could be used to scrape lists of people and narrow them down by certain criteria, like having multiple biographies being known as breakthrough innovators for more than one innovation. So that you get serial breakthrough innovators, not one hit wonders uh, and things like that. And then, and that actually, honestly, once you put in those criteria, you know, you do get a bias towards uh People who worked in the Western world with English language, because I wasn't able to search, you know, for example, uh, lists that were in in other languages. But but it narrowed the list down to about thirty people, and then from that list, I took people across different time periods and across different sectors. And I really wanted to take people across different genders. For example, I would have liked to have had more women on the list, but as As you get to understand how you end up on most famous innovators list, you start to realize that while we're gonna see a lot more women in the future, we didn't have that many women in the past because of the way education and science were structured and in a way it made it very difficult to be a woman in this field. Um, So anyway, that's kind of how I got the list. I didn't pick the people myself, this protocol picked the people. Now I've gotten some flack that there weren't more women. I've gotten flack that there weren't more people of color. And, uh, you know, all I can see is I can't change history. We can only hope that learning about this helps us change the future, right? So these are the people who were historically cited, but, um, you know, hopefully our list for the future will be much more diverse. And then, okay, so you wanna know some of the traits. So let me also say that when I started this project out, I was looking for something else. I actually at the time was doing a lot of research on social networks. And I thought I would find these people who were really, you know, robustly connected to with really eclectic, broad, diverse social networks, because that was the kind of research I was doing at the time. So that was kind of my expectation. What I ended up finding was something very, very different from that. And I was very, shocked and surprised. It actually sparked a lot of my, my desire to go for, you know, to work on this research project. Most of these people that I studied here and in, uh, in this book had a profound sense of separateness, like a social detachment. They didn't feel like they belonged to the world or they didn't feel like the world had taken them in. And in many ways, they didn't feel like the rules of the world applied to them because of that. And you can, it comes through so strongly that you would be hard pressed to deny it in this particular group of people now i don't think that that means you have to have separateness to be a breakthrough innovator but i do think that there's two two things that happen here first of all if you are incredibly separate just by nature it can be harder to assimilate in a standard corporate environment or to work in groups and so in some ways you're nudged to go do something more autonomous and it's funny because i have a friend who uh, founded Skull Candy. Headphones and and he's a serial entrepreneur. And I asked him one time, you know, what motivated you to be a serial entrepreneur? And he said, "Well, I just can't work for anybody. I <laughs> you know, so just, I just, he says, bosses don't want me. I don't want a boss. And so he became an entrepreneur. So there's that part of it. Then there's also the fact that when you feel separate from the world, you're way more likely to generate ideas that are different from the consensus in the world, right? You're more likely to pursue things that are non-normative, that are that are not you know, the kind of normal things that everybody agrees on. And those ideas are more likely to be some of a lot of those ideas are going to fail. But the ones that succeed are more likely to be breakthrough innovations because they're breaking through paradigms or norms or assumptions we already had. So I do think that people who are a bit separate like that have an advantage and are in some ways sort of forced to become more innovative and tend to do things more different. But that doesn't mean you have to be separate. To be innovative there's a lot of ways to tap the same advantages even if you are a very social person
1: and this is tom laurie you're listening to the mentors radio show we are with melissa Schilling, who is one of the world's leading authorities on innovation and creativity let's go back to that so as you were talking i was thinking about my career i was a um, an executive in a company called american hospital supply that merged with baxter my role was to do turnarounds Typically, after we acquired a company, which was founded by somebody generally who was quirky, uh, uh, within two years, they were not meeting expectations, and I was brought in to find out why. And I, I found, again, that these uh, entrepreneurs just didn't fit, and they left the company, and there was a conflict. And I always went out initially to go out and talk to them to find out what their vision was and see if I could get them involved in some way. But they had been burned by the big company and decided that was not their the place they wanted to go, so there there I've I've run it I think I've lived my life around a lot of quirky people. You have a comment you want to make?
2: Yeah, I think I think one of the things we could really do better in that whole phenomenon is that we haven't. First of all, the re- entrepreneurs very often aren't managers, and they shouldn't have to be. Right. They should be able to start up firms, nurture them to the point where they are ready to be handed off to someone who's ready to take the reins and, and make this, you know, more scaled or more efficient. You know, and and I think part of the problem is that we frame that as failure. You know, like you mentioned, they get they get burned or they, they feel like they don't fit in. Well, they shouldn't want to fit in. They should want to go start something new. They should just keep starting new things and then handing them off to managers. And we should herald those as like triumphs. Triumphant, triumphant, successes. I think it's, it's challenging sometimes though, because when you do create something beautiful, it's your baby and you tend to want to hang on to it. It's hard to let go, but the, but the best entrepreneurs know how to let go. They're really good at that,
1: but losing them all together. I mean, they have a tremendous uh, knowledge and intuition and, yeah. you know, just to see them leave and being cut off, I think is a loss for uh-huh. whoever carries the project.
2: No, they shouldn't be cut off. They should stay on the board and they, or in the, you know, in the corporate R and D team, I mean, because often they are the ones that brought the magic to the product, right? And sometimes when they leave, you you lose some of that spark, you lose that idealism or that hope or that optimism that made the product so cool. Um, so yeah, you don't want them to leave. You just want them to be ready to hand the management to someone.
1: But there's different motivations, as you well know, between a corporate environment and a startup environment. The entrepreneur. And uh, the um, many times I was in a large company, and I can tell you, what drove people there was a lot different than what drove entrepreneurs. And in the world that I live in, in startups now, in the healthcare field, the people I like to work with the most, who I treasure the most, are those that are on a mission. I'm yeah. not interested in working with those that are interested in a big payday. I'm an absolute believer that if you follow the mission, there will be a payday and everyone will be happy. But the mission is what drives everything and keeps people together.
2: Yeah, for sure. Uh, That's something else that came out in my study is idealism or having a mission was hugely important because when you have an idealistic goal, you have an immense amount of motivation. You also, it gives you a certain kind of agility because you're so focused on reaching this, this noble goal that you think is bigger than yourself that you are not as uh, rigid sometimes in the methods by which you get to that goal. And you're, and you're not that worried about profit or worried about pats on the head or people liking you. You're worried about getting it done.
1: We're going to come right back after a short break. We're with Melissa Schilling, author of quirky. Remember you can listen to the mentors radio live on Saturdays worldwide on iHeartRadio. This is Tom Laurie, and this is the mentors radio show.
0: And now Back to the Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business.
1: Welcome back. This is Tom Loy, and I am with Melissa Schilling, author of Quirky, and we're talking about the traits, foibles, and genius of breakthrough innovators like Steve Jobs, Albert Einstein, Madame Curie, who changed the world. If you enjoy the show, please take a moment to rate us on Spotify or Apple. Your positive comments can make a big impact on those unfamiliar with the show. Thank you for your support; it means a lot to us. You were talking in the last segment about the we were talking about mission. Uh, you had yeah. more to add to that, I know.
2: Yeah, no, I it's you know it's funny because that was another thing that hadn't really been in the innovation research. This idea of idealism making a difference for innovation, but if, when you study these innovators, you can see how it works so clearly. Like people like Marie Curie or Benjamin Franklin or Steve Jobs or Elon Musk. All these guys, oh, Dean Kamen's a great one. They because they were working on something they felt was intrinsically valuable, intrinsically noble, and bigger than them in the world. They were very, they were very focused. They were very, very persistent. They were willing to endure and suffer a lot for their cause. Uh, you know, a lot of them they didn't care about the money. They didn't care about their reputation. They took a lot of uh, sometimes abuse. Benjamin Franklin took some abuse for some of his pursuit of his idealistic goals, but it. It, it just uh, it drove them. It gave them incredible drive. And it gave them what some people call grit. So sometimes people hear about grit being very useful in, in business or especially in innovation. If you want grit, look for something you care about that you think is more important than you. Something that you think is more important than money. Something you would fight for even if you had to sacrifice everything for it. And you will find grit.
1: Let's keep rolling through, because I think there's, what, three or four more that we have to cover uh, in terms of the traits, and let you just kind of take it from here and kind of take us through the balance of them.
2: All right. So one of the most important uh, characteristics that really comes through is self-efficacy. And self-efficacy is a sort of narrow form of confidence. So confidence is a broad term. It can refer to anything, Like, Do you think you have a great smile and do your parents love you, (laughs) you know, but self-efficacy is task-oriented self-confidence. And it literally means you have absolute faith that you can overcome obstacles to achieve your goals. And when people have high self-efficacy, they will take on bigger, riskier projects because they have faith that they will solve them. They will also stick through tough times because they have faith that they can overcome those obstacles. And uh, they often end up achieving things that other people think are impossible. So to me, like the, I always give the iconic example of self-efficacy is Elon Musk, because when he was bound and determined to get to Mars, uh, he knew that it would take reusable rockets. And he was not a, you know, he's, he's a very smart guy, but he was not a, rocket scientist at the time. So when he said he was going to invent reusable rockets, everybody laughed at first. Right. And the space industry said, yeah, good luck, kid. You know, we've been trying to do that for 50 years. You know, it's it's really hard. You're not going to be able to do it. And he just sort of shrugged and said, I think I can do it. And he did it. Right. I mean, he just has this amazing self-efficacy where he believes that if he sets his mind to something, he can do it. And that drives him and makes him persistent and it makes him take on projects projects that other people think are absolutely crazy until he achieves them. So, you know, now most people won't bet against Elon Musk. If he says he's going to do something, he's probably going to do it. Uh, And self-efficacy is actually super cool because you can train people to have it. But maybe we'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, well, one let me, of the,
1: I just said break. So you're listening to the mentors radio show. We're with New York University's Melissa Schelling, who is one of the world's leading authorities on innovation, the author of quirky. Okay, go ahead. Let's go with the next. I want to do other- I do want to come back and talk a little bit about how people can develop self efficacy. That's a big issue. Yeah.
2: It's big, and it makes it'll make you happier as well as more productive. So we'll talk about that one uh, later. But I want to get to two of the other uh, sort of characteristics that came out because they're sort they're super interesting. One of them is that a lot of people in my that, that I studied actually turned out to have to look like they have a little bit of dopamine dysregulation, like a little bit of bipolar maybe, or a little bit of mania, or in the case of Nikola Tesla, a lot of mania. And you know, it was Nikola Tesla that sort of made me notice. And once I noticed it, Nikola Tesla would have absolutely been diagnosed with mania, perhaps bipolar, but nobody wrote about the low side. They only wrote about the high side, but he he never slept. He was very sensitive to stimuli. He had a lot of phobias ideas tended to come to him in like torrents like like waterfalls in his head he couldn't even control them he also had some visual uh, hallucinations consistent with elevated dopamine so I'm I have complete faith that if Nikola Tesla were alive today he would get diagnosed with mania but once you know that and you start looking at the other innovators you start seeing hints that there might be a little bit of dysregulated dopamine in all of them and in some ways that makes sense actually makes a lot of sense because when you have a little bit of elevated dopamine, it makes you have lower uh, latent inhibition, which means you connect more things together that other people won't connect to. You'll notice more details that other people don't notice. You'll be confident, right? Mania is um, a- a often linked to delusions and grandeur, but a little bit of mania could just make you really, really confident. So we may discover that mania and self-efficacy are fairly close bedfellows, not not that you want to be manic, but having a little bit of extra confidence and energy and making lots of connections could be somewhat valuable. So anyway, so a little bit of, you can start to see the relationship between psychopathology and genius. You start to see where this this stereotype of the mad genius comes from, because, uh, you know, it may, you know, bipolar people are, the bliss of literature laureates are just Proportionately populated by people with bipolar disorder and they don't choose treatment because they like the highs well enough that they're willing to endure the lows. And as they will often say, they don't want to give up their angels. They don't want to give up the inspiration they get during their manic periods. So I think there's something there. I think it's an interesting area of research that we can do more on. At this stage, it's really just clues, but it's it's it was interesting. It certainly and then-
1: would be, it, it seems also with, uh, I mean, I've known a number of people that are bipolar and i understand the highs and lows but it would seem that that type of research would also offer hope for these people and how it can be used
2: good yeah it's good news in some ways oh i had a really interesting experience i was doing work on innovation and at the time i was also doing work on neurodegeneration because i dabble in some research on alzheimer's also and uh one of my colleagues came up to me one day uh his name's joe Porak. he's a he's a really uh, famous professor also and of his own. And he came up to me and said, Hey, I saw this really cool article the other day that said there's a link between um, Parkinson's and creativity. Like they find out these people who get diagnosed with Parkinson's suddenly are sculpting and painting and doing all these things that they never used to do before. And at that moment, I was working on the dopamine Stuff with Nikola Tesla, and I instantly thought, you know what? It's not the Parkinson's, it's the levodopa that they're treating the Parkinson's with. They're probably initially overdosed a little bit on dopamine, they're getting it as a drug, and it's not regulated the way your body would regulate it. So I just said that, you know, immediately as like a hunch. And then, sure enough, about six months later, the research came out and said, Oh, you know what? It's the levodopa, and it was so it was really cool that it really it sort of affirmed a lot of the research I was doing on on mania and psychopathology and innovation at that time. And, you know, gives us some insight. So uh, last trait I want to mention, there's actually two more traits, but one of them is is something we'll come back to maybe called non-exercise activity thermogenesis. It's people who are a little bit just more active fidgety movement oriented than other people that's probably also connected to elevated dopamine and there's uh the trait that wasn't there that i expected which is i thought there would be a, a huge length of financial resources and surprisingly it was sort of a reverse trend in that most of the innovators i looked at started out dead broke like totally dead broke had to bootstrap their way to uh, having any resources to innovate with. So that was interesting too.
1: Well, we're going to be right back and continue the discussion with Melissa Schilling, the author of Quirky. You can listen to this and any previous episode by going to our website, thementorsradio.com or to your favorite podcast platform. Subscribe while you're there so you don't miss any future shows. This is Tom Lurie and this is The Mentors Radio Show.
0: And now... Back to the Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business.
1: Welcome back. This is Tom Roy, and I'm with Melissa Schilling, author of Quirky, and we're talking about the traits, foibles, and genius of breakthrough innovators like Steve Jobs, Albert Einstein, Madame Curie, those who changed the world. So I know we want to talk some more about those last couple of traits here, but I got to ask the question. Do you have any quirks?
2: (laughs) Uh, okay. So that's, you know, owning up to some of this is a little bit, uh, awkward. I think I have pretty self high, high, pretty high self-efficacy because I was raised by a very unusual woman who made me very independent. And I do think that one of the ways you achieve self-efficacy is when someone gives you the space to try and fail and try and succeed. And eventually you get some early wins that teach you something about yourself and help you cultivate that sense of persistence and resilience. Uh, I also do think that I have a bit of, um, you know, sometimes a little bit elevated dopamine. You know, I I am prone to these sort of maybe hypomanic can, moments, if, if that's the right word, uh, you know, where ideas may rush in or I'm not sleeping a lot or I get very obsessed on something. I have incredible persistence. I can get obsessed with something and work on it day and night and think about it day and night and then come up you know, three to six months later and realized, you know, that the world has just gone by while I was underground working on this, but, <laughs> but it's, it can be, it can be productive or it can be unproductive. Like, for example, I ended up doing that with Alzheimer's and ended up publishing a paper in the journal of Alzheimer's disease. Cause I got really obsessed with Alzheimer's for a period of time. Cause there was a little puzzle in the science there that I, that I, I think I solved I, I, you know, for me. I don't know that it solved it for the world, but I think I understand how the puzzle happened. And then, uh, but I also got obsessed that way about the Malaysian flight that went down in the, what was it, the Atlantic. And I think that was probably an unproductive fixation, you know, staying up until three in the morning, tracking flight radar, trying to figure out how we would solve that riddle.
1: And in your undergraduate, did you have a science background?
2: Yeah, I actually did. I I started out as a biology major. I wanted to do pre-med. Uh, but I have really strong convictions about not hurting animals. And so in my first physiology class, they said we were going to be killing some frogs and some rats. And I said, okay, that's it. And I left and I uh, went into business school because I knew that you could do just about, you could pursue really just about anything through business. So yeah. I have quite and, a bit of and, biology. and that gave
1: you a background in statistics and math and everything else.
2: Actually, for the PhD in, in business, I had to have a research minor in econometrics, so we had to learn research methods. So I've got a lot of background in statistics for sure. Yeah, uh, I have minors in environmental science, economics, and and statistics. And it was the statistics training that I was able to harness when I was looking at the Alzheimer's research because I realized I could. I realized that you know there were two different bodies of research coming to opposing conclusions. I thought I'm going to look at those research designs and figure out how they came to those conclusions and figure out who's right and who's wrong. And then when I did that, it, it uh, was actually very, very clear what had happened.
1: Well, my wife hasn't been diagnosed with Alzheimer's, but she does have dementia. As you well know, there's many different dementia. Many
2: different types of dimensions. So, yeah. They all kind of get called Alzheimer's, but they're not all Alzheimer's.
1: So I'm. And we're going to have a guest on next month uh, in this field. So so you and I are going to have to talk some more. Anyways, let's go back. Let's go back to those uh, traits. And we were on number five and you had one that you thought it was going to come and didn't. It was going to be on the list. Let's go back to that. Yeah.
2: Oh, yeah. So, you know, I'm at a business school, which means I, by default, think a lot about financial institutions and think a lot about education, right? Those are the two sort of, you think business school, those are the two pieces that come to mind and you know, kind of anticipated that, that this might show up in the research. But one of the most interesting things about these people, despite any preconceptions people might have, is that they really didn't come from money. They came from, most of them at the time were, were in positions where they were in very difficult times. I can go more into that if you like. And so they didn't have access to financial resources generally. Some of them didn't even have strong social resources. They also, a lot of them didn't have as much education as you might expect. Um, some of them were highly educated, like Marie Curie and Nikola Tessa were highly educated. But for example, in Marie Curie's case, she was largely self-educated. Benjamin Franklin, as every, most people know, was almost entirely self-educated, really only had a few, a few months of schooling, of formal schooling. Thomas Edison, you know, di- didn't get beyond elementary school, was pulled out of elementary school by his mother, uh, Steve Jobs has a high school education. Dean Kamen has a high school education. These people all went on to do things that you probably would have assumed you could only do with a a PhD, some sort of advanced training. Um, But even when they did have advanced training, they were often self-taught. So like Dean Kamen taught himself electronics and medical technology and ended up inventing the world's first portable dialysis machine. He also invented the world's first drug infusion pump. So when you see someone who needs insulin, like a type one diabetic, who has an insulin pump on them, Dean came and invented that and he has a high school education. So, uh, you know, one of the things that told me is that we should be wary of over-credentializing our requirements for jobs, right? Like sometimes we look for credentials that tell us someone is the right person for the job. When we do that, we eliminate a lot of people and we also make people who don't have those credentials feel like they're less than or like they're not entitled to, to be innovators. and. And it it, it couldn't be further from the truth when you look at who actually innovates. In some ways, not being trained can be an asset because when you are highly trained, you can really easily get trapped in the dogma of a field, right? You can really get wed to the assumptions that everybody else made and the way you pursue it and what the the potential solutions are. And so then you're trapped. You're stuck in a way. It's hard to think outside the box then. But when people come to the field who are not well-trained in an area or who train themselves they may come up with entirely different solutions. And so, you know, sometimes, you know, this is why we often talk about outsiders being breakthrough innovators. Breakthrough innovators are, are disproportionately likely to be outsiders to an industry.
1: I know that firsthand. And I conventional wisdom is one of the greatest obstacles to doing great things, I can tell you. I've I've always been attracted to things that are different, have a big upside. I'm not a genius, and I'm not one of those great innovators, but I know I'm smart enough to hire some really great people. And I went into a field uh, uh, in ophthalmology that was dominated by people that had been in a field in ophthalmology. And I recruited a bunch of people from outside the field, and we did all sorts of innovative things that no one had ever thought about. So yeah. I, I fully subscribe to that. I'm, I'm one of those when they talk about diversity, I'm one of those that's diversity of thinking, diversity of perspective, because yes. that's where you really get some exciting things.
2: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. In fact, even Albert Einstein, you know, Albert Einstein completed a PhD, but he was really an outsider and he was so much of an outsider that none of his professors would write letters of recommendation for him. So even though he wanted to go on and become a professor, nobody would have him. He said he applied to every school in Europe and was turned down from all of them. And so he went to work as a patent clerk, but he decided, you know what? I'm still going to write theoretical art, theoretical physics articles. I'm just going to do it on my own and I'm just not going to listen to anyone else. And when he started writing his articles, he disregarded all the stuff that everybody else would have considered, you know, the canon of physics. Like he threw away a bunch of Newtonian physics and he disregarded the idea of ether. He broke a lot of a lot of rules. He didn't cite the people that you would have expected him to cite. And, you know, it's kind of a miracle that he was able to get his work published, but when it was published, it revolutionized physics. Like it was amazing, just really changed the way we thought about so many things from what light is to the way gravity works to space and time, all these things. It was really breakthrough and it was breakthrough because he was not constrained by, you know, the conventional wisdom.
1: And he came up with things that have, Change the thinking in so many different areas i mean it's yeah. incredible yeah so we're going to come right back and we're with uh, melissa schilling who's the author of quirky you'll find all of our show notes and we'll make a note that we list i don't know if your textbook is available uh to amazon or anything but we'll find a link to it so people want to get that and we'll get quirky on there as well um so make sure you subscribe uh, so you don't miss any future shows that's the mentorsradio.com. this is tom Loy, and this is the mentors radio show
0: And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business.
1: Welcome back. This is Tom Loy, and I'm with Melissa Schilling, author of Quirking, and we're talking about the traits, foibles, genius of breakthrough innovators like Steve Jobs, Albert Einstein, Madame Curie, those who changed the world. So this is the last segment. We got about five minutes, actually a little bit less, but let's... Um, Let's talk about nurturing. I, I'm a parent. I'm a grandparent. I'm, I got all of that going on. I'm very familiar with these people that are make us uncomfortable sometimes. But how do we how do we nurture this? And and think about it both as a parent and also from an organizational standpoint. Yeah, as a manager. Okay, cool. Uh,
2: well, so it was interesting. Even though the book ends up studying some people who are quite special in a number of ways, what it teaches us is how to harness these mechanisms. Even if you don't feel like you're special, like even even if you said earlier, you're not a genius. But uh, first of all, I don't know if that's true. But secondly, even if you weren't a genius, you would be able to harness all the same mechanisms these people harnessed. And so let's talk about some of the ways you can nurture it. First of all, one of the things that jumps out, if you have a kid that's maybe sort of stands on the side, that's a little bit of a loner, doesn't fit in. I actually, I, you know, I used to, I had a kid who was kind of like that. And I used to wonder how to help her make friends and how to socialize her. I now have changed my thinking on that. I think when you, when you try to teach a kid how to be a skillful social person, part of what you're teaching them is maybe who they are naturally isn't good enough or isn't right. When instead, what what we really need to focus on is helping all kids feel good about who they are, no matter what they're whether they're social kids or non-social kids. There's a lot of people who aren't don't want to be in a crowd, who are profoundly successful and happy not being in a crowd. So I think a big part of that is just acceptance. Like one of the there's a great story about Steve Jobs getting a job at Atari. And I don't have time to tell you the whole story, but the key to it was because they were willing to accept him for how he was, which was weird and awkward and difficult, they were able to help unleash one of the greatest creative talents of our time. Another thing uh, relates to the self-efficacy I brought up earlier. One of the powerful ways we can develop self-efficacy is through early wins. And uh, and we don't actually lose self-efficacy through failure as much as we gain self-efficacy through wins. And so what that suggests is you ought to just give people more scope to try, right? Like instead of jumping in to help your kid when they're struggling on something, stand back and say, you got this. I have faith in you. You can do it. Just try another way. Same thing with employees, you know, giving them broader scope to try things because the more they try, you know, the more likely they are to find something they succeed at and get that early win that builds self-efficacy. But the good news is we can also build self-efficacy vicariously because we are, we have evolved to be very social animals and we learn from watching others of our kind and the things they do. And so even just reading about People who've overcome great adversity or people who've achieved great, huge goals despite obstacles, reading about them, watching movies about them. Every time we do that, we internalize a little part of that that says, huh, that's what's possible. That's something maybe I can do. So this is this is why it's so valuable to expose your kids, expose yourself, expose your employees to stories about how other people have overcome obstacles to achieve their goals. And the last one I'll bring up really quickly, I mentioned that you don't need a lot of money and you may not even need a lot of formal education to achieve what you need to achieve. But what most of these people did have was someone connected them to someone else who could help them achieve their goals. So they often found resources through other people they got connected to. They didn't necessarily have giant networks and they often weren't socially savvy, but they found that person that could help them, almost all of them, right? Marie Curie married Pierre Curie, who invented the spectrometer that allowed her to measure radiation. Uh, Steve Jobs, we all know, had Steve Wozniak, who he, you know, would have would not have achieved the things he did without Steve Wozniak. Even Albert Einstein had a very good friend who helped him with math. So um, you know, finding those, helping connect people to the people you think can help them to achieve their goals, is one of the most powerful resources I think we can give people.
1: So we probably got about ten seconds or fifteen seconds for you. To, what does a meaningful life look like?
2: You know, I think the most meaningful life happens when you find something that you believe is worth working on, even if nobody else approves or will pay you or or you know, rewards you for that thing. You think that if I could do that, then I could die happy. You know, I would give up money. I would give up comfort just to achieve that thing. And you want to know what that thing is for me? You want to know what that thing is for me? What is it? It's, it would be, you know, kindness to animals. I think that we impose a lot of needless suffering on animals. And if that, if I could change that, I'd give up everything for that.
1: Well, you're on your, you're on that path. So thank you very much. That's it till next week. Thank you, Melissa, for taking the time to join us as our guest mentor. We've been with Melissa Schilling, author of Quirky, and we have been talking about the traits, foibles, and genius of breakthrough innovators. If you missed any of the show, you'll find a link and our show notes, including a link to Quirky on our website. and We're going to add the link to her textbook, thementorsradio.com, or on your favorite podcast platform. Uh, Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss future shows. Join us next week at the same time for the next edition of The Mentors Radio. Until then, this is Tom Laurie signing off for today. Remember to be all you can be and keep the candle lit for all who struggle in the darkness.
0: It's been The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business.